go ahead and grab a seat, everybody. Welcome again to Marin Covenant Church. Uh, my name is Ben Kearns. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And there's this, uh, there's this theological idea that um, began all in Judaism and in Christians have taken it on. And uh, it's this idea that God promises and then we are to act, which makes sense, right? A lot of times we think God promises and then God's going to do everything for us. But usually the way that God does his work is that he he acts through his people. So God promises and we are to act. And so every now and then, I want to test if certain promises are for me. And I don't know if, you're, if you do this, uh, but about once a year, the Powerball gets to be a billion dollars, <laughs> right? And when the Powerball gets to be a billion dollars, they're like, God, are you promising me something? Because the truth is, if we don't act, we'll never get to experience that blessing. We'll never get to know what that promise is for us. And so for whatever reason, for me, it's a billion dollars. At that point, I feel like maybe, right? Just maybe. So I go to 7-Eleven and I go one dollar. Actually, I go five dollars because I got to give God at least a, a better shot at his promise. And I, and I drop my five bucks. And, um, and what's wild is, just like the commercial says, for that entire day, I'm a different person, right? I'm like, God. What if you did promise and I acted and I walked away with a billion dollars? Now, it's true. I've taken a lump sum, of course, and then with taxes, it's $375 million. But I still feel like that's a reasonable amount. And so I'm taking my $375 million and I realize if God promised and I act and I won $375 million cash in my hand, my life would be changed forever. Your life would be changed forever because I realized... I, if I spent all the money that I wanted on all the things, I would still have like $371 million left. I, count, I added up. I'm like a little kid. I'm like, I mean, turns out unlimited Snicker bars are not that expensive, you know? And I just added it all up. So I have all this money and I realized, well, I love my church. I love my staff. Everyone on staff, a million dollars. I love all my friends, a million dollars. For some reason, that's like my go-to. Like everyone's just getting a million dollars. It'd be incredible. You'd be, we'd be such good friends, right? It'd be awesome. And then... <laughs> Like everyone who's ever won the lottery within a year, all my money would be gone and that moment would be over, right? <laughs> and it's wild because I was trying to get my head around the good news. And is there really news that would actually, in a non-weird, non-religious way, but compel me to share the news with people, to share my life with others, to feel better about myself, to not be awkward in social situations. I tell you, I would walk into any coffee shop and I wouldn't care what I'm wearing, what I dressed, what my car was, because I would know I have $371 million left in my bank account, right? Like, and so for whatever reason, that was just the frame of going, yes, that would be the thing that would just change my life forever. Turns out probably for a year. <laughs> but the reality is, is that God actually has given us truly good news, the Christian church, the foundation of the church is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's that something like this religiously gumbo, jumbo thing. But that statement, that thing, and what the good news is, has actually changed and transformed people forever, for their whole lives, not just for one great year, not just for a moment in high school, but for their whole life, God has transformed and changed people. And people have seen that people not only have changed them personally, it's changed their family systems, it's changed their communities, it's changed culture, it's changed the world, the gospel, the good news. And for some reason, for those of us in the church who've been around the church a long time, we're like, oh, that's going to be awkward if I share that, right? 
But what if the gospel, if, we, if our understanding of the gospel, if we came to realize what it was that God did for us, what it was that God loves us, what it is how God sees us, what if we not just understood in our head, but understood that at the core of our being, how do we not be compelled to share the good news, to share our life, to share who we are? And so this next, uh, for the next five weeks here, uh, Jeff and I are so excited for this next sermon series called So, So Good. Because we genuinely believe if we really understand what the gospel is, it is so good. And we think if we really come to know what the gospel is in our guts, that there's five things that we get to share with the world. Five things that we get to share. And it's not as hard and scary as you think it is because just like if I won the lotto, it's just, it becomes second nature, at least for that first year, just to spend money, just to share. And we think if we come into contact with God, the living God, if our lives are changed, if we can come into, you know, come back in touch with that, that these are these five things that we get to share with the world because we know our world desperately needs it. And so this morning to kick it off, this is the thing. I can't wait to share the good news with you. And I'm a pastor. If this sermon was done in Starbucks, it'd be a totally different sermon. But since we are in church, um, I get to give you both barrels, the full, uh, the full thing. I get, I'm so excited to share the gospel with you. But really, I am just taking on the posture of one of my, um, one of the most fascinating past people in scripture, um, in John chapter 4, Jesus has this encounter with this woman, and we're going to see through the encounter with this woman that her whole life is changed, and she does things that are just bonkers, and her whole community is changed because Jesus generously and graciously gives her the gospel. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 4, and we're just going to look at one verse up here, and the rest of it are going to actually be in our Bibles. So you need to have a Bible in front of you or a Bible on your phone. And if you have a Bible in front of you, will you just yell out the page number? Because um, sometimes it's hard to find where something is in the Bible. For you old school people, John is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels, and John's the fourth one. And then the big numbers, those are the chapters, and the little numbers are the verses. And we're looking for John, big four. We find a 1065. Nice work, Hillary. And Anka. You guys were tied. I'll put stars next to your name in my office. Perfect. Okay, so this word ends. Um, so John, chapter four, verse 28. This is, we're going we're gonna to begin this, our sermon with the end of the story, okay? So then leaving her water jar. So you got to love beginning a sermon with then who's leaving. Jesus, uh, the woman is leaving her water jar from a conversation she had with Jesus. This woman goes back to this town and she says to the people, come, see the man who's told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of town and they made their way toward him. And when I think about this idea of sharing the gospel, this woman, uh, the woman at the well, this story just was the first one I thought of. And I've read a couple of different stories, but I just love this story so much because this woman, as we're going to come to find out, um, she's, a, she's a Samaritan. She's from a different culture. She's from a different class. She's from a different gender, right? She's, so she's, she's like already in the social hierarchy. She's lower uh, than Jesus and she's lower than the, the majority of everybody. But not only that, if she was a noble woman of wealth, then that'd be one thing. But we're going to find out she's like on her fifth husband. And in any, in any society, five husbands is, even in our culture, we're like, that's kind of a lot, right? Um, but in a very religious culture, even more so, right? So this woman is like, right, she's just the bottom of the social hierarchy, of the cultural hierarchy, of the religious hierarchy. And, uh, and we're going to see that Jesus does this all the time and, and throws all those things up, upside down. 
But this woman, this is what I think is so incredible. This woman, for her station, for her spot, to have this encounter with Jesus that's so mesmerizing, that's so transformative, that's so impactful, that she'd be willing to go back to town and make sure that the people in her town knew about this person who was this Messiah that they were longing for, even from her stature and her place. So I'm like, my question is, what in the world did Jesus say to this woman? What in the world was their interaction? Because I think for us, I would love it if myself, if us as a church were people who was just in us to be compelled to have to tell people about the love and grace of our Heavenly Father. So to, to understand where we're at, let's start from the very beginning. Let's begin um, our whole story in John chapter 4, verse 7. So in John chapter 4, verse, I guess, sorry, verse 4 is, is where we're going to begin. So now he had to go through Samaria. This is Jesus. So Jesus, right, you know the stories of Jesus, or you've seen the little cartoons, right? Jesus with his disciples, they go around teaching the word and healing people and doing all these ministries. And they're in, they're in the south of, they're like near Jerusalem-ish. And Jerusalem's in the southern part of Israel. Galilee, where his hometown is, is in the northern part of Israel. And then right in the middle is this little region called Samaria. And the Jewish people did not like the Samaritans. The Samaritans did not like the Jewish people. And most good Jewish people would kind of take the long way around. But Jesus, because he's Jesus, right, goes straight into Samaria. And what I love is this is John 4. This is like the end of John. Jesus is like built up all the street cred. He's doing all these incredible things. The author of this gospel is like right in the very beginning. What does Jesus do? He goes into Samaria. And so that's what he So he goes through Samaria. They came to this town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired as he was warm from his journey. So he sits down by the well, and it was about noon, the middle of the day. Middle of the day, Middle East, it's hot. This is when you should be taking a nap. But Jesus is at the well. So then when a Samaritan woman comes to him, he draws water. Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? Now his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Right, disciples go into town to buy food. Jesus is here all by himself at a well. This woman comes to the well all by herself. And really what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to go to the well in the morning or the evening because it's a social thing. That's when everyone's getting water and you want to visit your friends. You only go in the middle of the day because hopefully no one's going to be there because you don't want to deal with anybody because everyone sees your garbage. And she sees this rabbi. Can you imagine? She must have been so bummed. So the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks for you, and who it is that asks for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you this living water. And Jesus kind of begins this kind of cryptic conversation um, with her. But I love the way this, be this whole story begins. And this, this is the very beginning, the foundational part of the gospel is that Jesus sees um, that Jesus sees all of us and he still loves us. So here's this awful reality that this woman, her sin, her shame, her brokenness was there for the whole world to see, right? It's a tiny little town. Everyone knew all of her husbands. She could not escape her sin, her grossness, and it's just out there for the world. But there's this really weird thing about our doctrine of sin is that sin is actually universal, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Her sin happens to be out front. For some reason, we as humans, and unfortunately as religious people, we think if we cover up our sin, we don't have it. 
And then we can just judge the people who don't cover it up well, right? So if we have nice clothes, nice makeup, we pluck our eyebrows just right. We, like, really, what are we doing? We are covering up ourselves. We do not, the truth is, we don't want anyone to see us like our real us. We want people to see the projected version of us, but the reality is, is that we all have this deep brokenness, shame, sin, garbage that's inside of us, and we pretend, we work hard, we do everything in our power so people will actually not see us. And it's important to remember that, it is just a, a sidebar, that when you see someone who can't cover it up as well as you, man, you are not better at them, you are just better at covering it up than them. And we realize that our universal thing that we have in common is that we are sinful and broken. And the truth is we're in shambles. And that's why we need Jesus, right? And what I love is that Jesus sees her. Warts and all. You see later that passage. He's like, go get your husband. She's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, yeah, I know. Like, even Jesus knows, right? And, and we get so worried. We're like, gosh, what if Jesus actually sees me? What if Jesus actually saw all the stuff in my life? What's so funny, he's like, Duh, he already does. Jesus already sees the depths of us, the grossest things as he sees us at our very core of our being. And what's wild is in, in our human experience, if you've ever had a friend or a partner or someone in your life who has actually seen you at your worst and loves you, oh, what a gift, right? And so it's this weird thing. We, excuse me, we want to be seen, but we don't want to be seen at all. But God made us. We're made in the image of God. We're made in such a way that we actually need to be seen. We need to be seen. And I love how scripture begins. In the very beginning, Genesis chapter one, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates all the animals. He does all the things. At the very end, he creates, creates human beings in his own image. And then it says, God saw them and it was good. Right in the beginning, God saw them. He sees humanity. He knows what we're all about. He knows what's going on, but he sees us. And we're made in the image of God. In Numbers chapter 6, there's this uh, called the Aaronic blessing. It's one of the oldest blessings in all the Old Testament. It's used in almost every Jewish ritual. And it's just this beautiful blessing, right? Listen to this. It's, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Isn't that beautiful? It's like the number one blessing in the whole Bible. And what at the very basic, the very core thing of the blessing is that the Lord sees you. And when he sees you, he's not like, oh my gosh. <laughs> he's gracious to you. He gives you peace. He lifts up his countenance upon you. He turns his divine favor toward you. We want to be seen and we're so scared of being seen. And yet if we are just honest with ourselves and know that God already sees us, what an incredible posture to allow God to actually see us. Uh, the psalmist says something similar in Psalm 139 at the very end, right? The psalmist says, search me and know my heart, right? That's a bold posture. Normally we keep God at bay, but what a different posture. We say, God, search me and know my heart. Test me and know if there's any anxious thoughts within me reveal any offensive ways in me. For some reason, we're so scared that reveal the offensive ways in me. God's like, no, I see them. You see them. You're covering up. God says, reveal those to me and then lead me along the path of everlasting life. God wired us, made us to be seen by him, to be seen by others. And this woman, in all of her shame, in so much shame and sin that she couldn't cover it up herself, and Jesus steps right into it, right into her, and sees her 
and treats her with such incredible dignity, and as we're about to see, ends up giving her one of the most incredible teachings about worship in all of Scripture to the Samaritan woman. So I think that's the first thing. That if we're going to understand the gospel and we really want it to be good, good news, then we need to understand that Jesus sees us, all of us, and yet he still loves us. The second point is this, that Jesus gives us the theology that we need. Jesus begins to come to this woman and begins to tell her about salvation. And it's, it's kind of cryptic, and it's just a verse here or there. And the truth is that the church fathers and theologians over thousands of years have taken all this, and we now have like this completed theology around it. But he begins the story talking about this idea of living water, right? In that era, you need water or you're going to die. Everyone knows what it's like to be thirsty. We just go to the water faucet and we have water. Like if you were going to uh, curb your thirst, it was effort. And Jesus is like, that thing that you do for your body, I will do that for you spiritually, right? That I will give you living water that will bubble up for eternal life. What an incredible gift. What an incredible story. And in fact, we talk about the different ways that things that Jesus does for us. I'm the bread of life. You know, I'm the water of life. Like, like he gives that teaching to this woman. And I just love, I just love that. That is, that he gave her the theology that she needed, right? In this moment, she's doing this thing. She has this felt need. And Jesus is like, oh, I can satisfy not your felt need, but your deepest need. And the reason why I put a Swiss army knife up there is because one of the things I love about the scriptures and Jeff and I were talking about this this last week with some, within this discipleship group, this idea that the, one of the great reasons why we want to study Scripture is that we realize that God and the way that he wants to communicate the gospel is so complex. Some of you guys really enjoy like the Enneagram or personality profiles, and you're like, look, there's all these different ways that we can understand ourselves. What's so cool is for all the different ways that we're trying to understand ourselves, God has uniquely found a way to communicate the gospel to the unique way that you've been wired. And so the more that we understand the scriptures, the more we understand theology, the more we get to go, oh my goodness, God is actually going to meet me in exactly how I need to be met. What's fun is in earlier John chapter three, John meets with a Pharisee and uh, this Pharisee who he can tell is warm hearted towards God. He begins to talk. Um, the Pharisee has some questions about what it's like to have this eternal life and to be born again. Jesus gives us this entire teaching on being born again to this Pharisee. It's incredible. But you realize in every encounter that Jesus had, he didn't just go, you got to be born again. You got to be born again. You got, he just, to the Pharisee, the Pharisee had these theological framing. He knew what it was and he answered the question. You remember the story of Zacchaeus, the little guy up in the tree, he's a tax collector. And uh, Jesus, the, his whole salvation story begins with Jesus seeing him, right? Jesus sees him, invites him to his house. And if you're a tax collector, right, you're, you're kind of excommunicated, from the Jewish people, right? You're Jewish, but you are out of the family, basically. And when Jesus sees him, you know what he says to him? He says, you are now a son of Abraham. You're back in the family. But you realize when Jesus goes to every other person he talks to in the scriptures, he doesn't say, you're a son of Abraham. You're a son of Abraham. But he goes to Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, you're a son of Abraham. You know what I love is the, the, the story of the woman who's caught in adultery, right? She's caught in the sin. I always wonder where the guy is in the story, but you know, for the sake of the story, the woman is there and all these religious people come up and are ready to stone her to death. I'm like, this is what the law says. What are you going to do about it, Jesus? And Jesus, in his he does this all the time, right? He always finds some weird third way. Every encounter, we always want to be like on two ends at war with each other. And Jesus always finds this weird third way. And he's like, well, I mean, whoever is the first, you know, whoever's, you know, sinned first, you know, you th sorry, sinned. I forget who's without sin. Sorry, throw the first stone. And, um, and right in one by one, they all walk away. And Jesus says, I'm not going to condemn you. Right? He still says, don't go and sin no more. But he doesn't condemn her. He takes her to most, her most embarrassing, shameful moment. 
and sees her and cares for her. He doesn't do that to everybody, but he did that to her, right? There are people who needed to be healed, people who were blind, people who were possessed by demons, right? Jesus knew exactly what they needed personally, would go to them and give them what they need. And so I love that about, our, about what Jesus does. And Jesus does that exactly with that woman. And so for you thinking about what is it that you need? What is it that you need for the good news? And instead of being scared about or trying to get your head around the born again thing, how gracious is God that God actually wants to communicate the good news to you in a way that actually matters and is a personal to the thing that you need. All right. What I think is so fun too is Jesus not only gives us the theology that we need for us personally, but he also gives us the theology that actually matters for how we live in community. So I mentioned this earlier, but after Jesus talks about the living water, um, the woman says, okay, you're obviously a prophet. Like there's something going on here. You're obviously a prophet. So then she's like, this is, my, this is my shot. Like we have Google and ChatGPT so we could answer all of our questions. And think about it in a non-literate ancient society, you know, you have all these questions. What do you do? And all of a sudden you, got, you have a prophet who's being nice to you in front of you. She's like, this is my chance. I'm gonna ask a question. She says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that this place, sorry, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. He says, woman, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. And so if you look at this, what's wild is we, because we've been around the church a long time, we just think Samaritans, we go dirt balls. Like we go, the Jewish people were great. Samaritans were bad. You know, Jesus is great. Pharisees are bad. That's kind of how we frame it. But the reality is the Pharisees were like, no, we're the religious people. We're the noble people because the Samaritans, they believe in the first five books of the Torah and that's it. Anyone who adds to that, well, then they are just adding to the word of God. And so the Samaritans are like, this is it. And in the Torah, Deuteronomy says that this mountain, Mount Gerzim, Gerzim I don't know how you pronounce it, but it always shows up on the map. It's right there in the middle of Samaria. There's a mountain right there. He said, this mountain is the mountain of blessing. And we are godly people. So this is our spot. So this Shechem, the, this town where this whole interaction is happening is right at the base of this most holy mountain. So the Samaritans were like, you Jewish people, you've missed it. The Jewish people were like, um, I'm sorry, we also have the prophets. And we realize that, you know, and we understand that the, Jerusalem is now the center place of worship. And then Jewish people look at Christians and we're like, because we've added on to the Old Testament. Now we have the New Testament, right? So you just see religious people, we do that all the time. We just divide and conquer. And I'm just saying that because for the, we think of Samaritans in one way, but the Samaritans were actually a pious people. They loved God and they said, we worship God this way. Jesus and Jesus, excuse me, the Jews worship this way. And this woman is like, what am I supposed to do? I'm in this community. You're obviously a prophet. And Jesus is like, whoa, you know what? Geography doesn't matter. This new gospel that I'm bringing, it actually doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan or if you're Jewish. It doesn't mean you have to now go to this mountain or that mountain. The gospel of Jesus now is going to transcend geography, transcend race. Like it, that is a wild wild teaching. And what's so fun is once you start reading scripture, you realize the gospel brings so much good news to so many things, right? So now it doesn't matter about uh, whether geography or culturally based, the gospel actually has some important things to say about materialism. And when we win the lottery, the, the gospel has, and Jesus' teaching has incredible things to say about our political division, about feminism and misogyny, about sex and sexuality, about how we care for the environment, 
and how we care for our immigrants. Right? And this is just, I mean, that's just a sampling. I mean, the gospel matters for all things. And it actually brings good news to all things. All right, the very last point is this, that Jesus makes space for us in his family. At the very end of this whole story, this is what's incredible. Verse 39 says this, many of the Samaritans from that town, they believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more people became Christians. No, that just became believers. <laughs> what I think is so wild is because of the testimony, Jesus ends up staying in Samaria for two more days. And they all become believers. And we know later that all those believers, right, became part of this new community, this new family of God that was not ethnically based, right, was not status based. It was this brand new community. And, uh, and what's interesting is, for those of us who have been around the church a long time, I think we forget this, but every now and then a new person comes and is part of our community and they're like, whoa, this is kind of a unique thing. Because in the real world, there's not really people who gather who genuinely love and care for each other, who are not your immediate family, or you're not going to try to work for something. Like that's, it's unique. And every now and then a brand new person will show up and they kind of express that. But as adults, we kind of keep that to ourselves a little bit. But what I love about our students and our student ministry is they don't keep it to themselves. I mean, our poor high schoolers, they are growing up in the wild west. They are growing up in like, makes Lord of the Flies look like a tame environment. It is brutal for them, Right? The way that kids have to navigate their social world, every adult has gone MIA, teachers, coaches, right? They are left to their own devices to just navigate the world, and it is soul-crushing for them. And on Wednesday nights, they get to come to our church. They get to be with Ben and Shelley, these incredible leaders who have created this incredible space, and they all of a sudden get these adults who see them, who communicate the gospel to them, and allow them to belong. And they help these other teenagers learn how to interact with each other like human beings. And they actually have a safe place, one spot in their entire week where they get to be treated like human beings and have the dignity and worth. And they like, they freak out about it. I mean, in their very cool, like Gen Z way, but they freak out about it and they invite their friends. And all of a sudden all these like hoodlums show up at their church. Like why? Because this is a safe place for them to come and encounter God. What a gift. I'm so thankful for Shelly and for Ben and for our adults and for you as a church to make space in our wall and our broken walls for them to come and encounter that. But that is not just for our students. That is for every and anybody in the world. And what's interesting is when all these people from different backgrounds from different ages, from different ethnic backgrounds, from different socioeconomic backgrounds, when they all come and gather and worship together, it actually gives testimony to who God is. I'm reading this, this church history book, and uh, Augustine of Hippo had this incredible statement. So I'm just going to read this. This is uh, in like the 400s. So in the 400s, right, Christianity is in full swing in the Roman Empire. And uh, what, was, what was unique is Christians would gather from all these different pockets of the culture, and they would gather together, and people just didn't know what to do with it. So it says this, to Augustine of Hippo, it was precisely the diversity of the Christian people, the joining together of every social class that constituted its chief glory. Right? This idea of the gospel just being for us is great, but we know that the gospel has taken root, and we know that we're doing the right thing when we recognize that people from every social class come together. It ends up becoming its chief glory. And this is what Augustine of Hippo says. All are astonished to see the entire human race converging on the crucified one, from emperors down to beggars in their rags. I love it. I love that that 
is the gospel, that when we are seen by God, when we actually get the theology that we need that recognizes our sin and brokenness and the salvation we get through Jesus and the way that Jesus wants to use us in our culture currently, and then we get to do that with community, with people from every walk of life, every background. Gosh, what a beautiful gift. And if we get that, we're compelled to share that with others. So the gospel really is so, so good. And so the question is, so what? What do we do with that? What I love is in the, in the, in the Bible, we used to get a picture of this. Matthew, one of the disciples, he was a tax collector like Zacchaeus. But Jesus looks to Matthew and says, Matthew, um, I want you to be my disciple. And Matthew's like, great. And what's so fun is about people who just come to know to faith as adults, right? They don't know all the religious rules yet. And so Matthew, um, right, he comes, he's like, yep, I'm going to be a disciple. And uh, we don't know how it all worked out, but basically he throws this big old party for his friends. And uh, he's like, I have a party with my friends. And who are my new friends? Jesus and his disciples. They're my friends too. I guess they're coming to my party. It's weird. Only those of us who've been around the church a long time go, I have my Christian party. And then I have my work party, and then I have my school party, and we just, you know, we divide and conquer. But Matthew didn't know that yet, right? So he has this giant party with everybody, and everyone's freaking out, like, how is Jesus here? Because Matthew is this full, integrated person. He understands he's a tax collector. He understands that he's a sinful person. He understands that he's broken. And he understands that the Messiah saw him, invited him into the good news story. And of course, he's just going to bring him along to his whole life. So that happens in the Bible. I actually, uh, a couple months ago, got to see that in the real world. Uh, so I am a, a pastor, right? So I'm definitely the Christian Lane person. So when, so when I'm invited somewhere, I'm always like, oh, the Christian Lane person gets to go to this party, right? Well, my friend, uh, you may know him, Chad Kadoff. He's a, this incredible guy. He works with our youth staff, and he's a runner. And he is the, one of the most generous human beings ever. And he came to Christ, you know, five or six years ago. And so he doesn't know the rules quite yet. And, um, and so he said, I'm going to throw this party, which is basically um, an ultra marathon race. And he's like, I got these friends who are ultra marathoners. I got these, like, these young guys from church. I'm not one of those young guys. He got these young guys who all are too macho and think they're, they have something to prove. And then he invited me and a couple older guys just for good measure. And then he had some people in, uh, in other communities that he's a part of. And he invited basically like 15 or 18 guys from every part of his life showed up. And what I love about Chad is he's like, hey, um, we're going to do this race, but before we race, um, I'm going to just offer a little prayer. And, um, and if you want to come join me for that, you're more than welcome to. If you don't, that's okay. Keep stretching or whatever. And sure enough, every one of these guys in the pitch dark gathered in a circle. Chad just offered up a little prayer. He didn't like change the world. He didn't like draw down, you know, fire from heaven. He offered a little prayer, a little blessing, a full integrated life. And then we all went and like tortured ourselves for the next like 10 hours. <laughs> It was incredible. But I mean, that's all it is. It's just that, it's, it's that simple. And I just think at the end of the day, when we talk about this idea of sharing our lives, I think we've like made it way too hard. I got to deal, you know, how do I defend this? How do I defend my faith? How do I defend these weird political people? How do, what do I deal with my aunt? What if someone asks me a question? What if someone knows that I'm a dirtball? Like we just get too freaked out. And I'm so excited because these next five weeks, Jeff and I, uh, and Shelly, I think I was preaching one of these two, we're just going to talk about how simple and joyful it is that we get to share this good life with one another. All right, I'm going to, before the band comes out, as they come out, there's just one thing I just want to um, invite. Some of you, actually probably most of you, have been around the church a long, long time. Long time. And how great that you've got to know God for a very long time. But for those of us who have been around a long time, ugh, 
the gospel sometimes doesn't feel like the good news. Christianity feels like a religion. It's Sunday morning, you got dragged to church. Like, and it's funny, we, we've, we've taken this thing that is the most beautiful, powerful, incredible thing in the whole world, and we've kind of gotten inoculated to it. And so for these next five weeks, this is not going to be, so you need to toughen up and get out there and share your faith and find out how great it is. That is not the call at all. But the gentle invitation for you is to think, gosh, maybe these next five weeks, maybe there's an invitation, an opportunity to re-examine and re-fall into love with this God. Because you don't have to be at church, right? I mean, at some point in your life, God grabbed a hold of you. At some point in your life, you encountered the living God who saw you, who saved you, who transformed you. And sure, life is hard and you've skinned your knees and bad things have happened and people have let you down and the world is the world. And I fully, trust me, I get that. But it doesn't change the fact that this loving God sees you, loves you, saved you, and wants to continue to love you and save you and use you. And so my hope and prayer for you is these next five weeks that you would just wrestle, wrestle that down. If your heart is hard or bruised, or two sizes too small like mine, wrestle it down. Because God has incredible things for you, not just then, but for now. And wouldn't that be incredible for us to be a church that had arms wide open to any and every person who is warm-hearted towards God, no matter how well they can cover their sin or not, and we get to be on this journey together. Let's stand together. Let me pray for us, and then we'll spend some time in worship and be done. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, what a gift that you, the creator of the universe, tune your faces toward us, your people. And you see us completely, warts and all. We're the only ones that are thinking we're covering it up well. And so God, I pray that you would see us. I pray that you would save us. I pray that you would transform us. And I pray that you would use this little church and this little spot on the map to bring grace and mercy and your good news to a world that needs it. And for my friends whose hearts are a little bruised and a little worn, I just pray in your generosity, God, that you in a really fresh and kind way would care for them, would meet them exactly where they're at, and you just continue to extend grace and mercy and love and to remind them how good you are and how much more you have for them. And we pray that everything we do along this journey would ultimately give you glory. So we love you, Lord. And as we sing this next song, we pray, God, that these words would not just be words we sing, but they would be words that would tune our hearts to the things that we long to be true, not just in our head, but in our whole being as well. We love you, Lord, and give you this time.